0: We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created.
1: You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network,
0: The world.
2: Hello everyone, welcome back to The Truth Perspective. It's August 7th, 2016. And for today's show, we're going to take a break from our kind of weekly look at the the train crash that is, you know, the state of the planet at this moment. We may get into some of the current events at the end of the show, but we decided to turn to one of our favorite topics, the strange, the weird, and the paranormal. So, we all recently reread the Mothman Prophecies by John Keel, so we thought we'd talk about that. And also we'll get into some other topics related to that, like the recent revival of The X-Files, those six episodes that came out several months ago. But first we're going to talk about John Keel. Um, for those who listen to the show but may not be familiar with um, these topics, John Keel came up recently when we interviewed David Jacobs about his, wo- his book, Walking Among Us, and we brought up Keel and and Jacobs, kind of dismissed him as kind of a crank um, He wasn't really reliable. Uh, we think that he was that Jacobs was kind of maybe missed the ball on that one a bit, um, as you'll see from our discussion. So just a bit about John Keel. He was um, just originally a writer from a very early age. I believe he was 14 when he started writing when he decided he wanted to be a writer, wanted to be a writer as his profession. So he started writing his own kind of his own journal, um, his own science fiction fanzine, um, and he wrote a column called "Scraping the Keel" for the Perry Herald when he was fourteen. From there, he um, he eventually joined the military, and when he was discharged, he spent a year or two traveling around the Middle East and South Asia, uh, investigating and just getting an idea for the culture and looking at all the weird things that were going on there. He wrote a book about his experiences called Jadu in 1957. And after that, in 1966, so when he was 36 years old, he was commissioned to write an article on UFOs for Playboy magazine. And while that piece was never published, he kind of got the the infection, the UFO infection. The bug. The bug. And um, kind of didn't stop after that. So in 1966, he started investigating in-depth all of these, well, just UFOs to start out with and then went from there. And that those experiences from and those investigations from 1966 and 67, he writes about in The Mothman Prophecies. So he actually wrote about five books on the topic. First was Operation Trojan Horse, and a kind of companion volume called Strange Creatures from Space and Time in 1970. And then in 75, I believe it was, yeah, he he published another kind of two books that were companion volumes, Mothman Prophecies and The Eighth Tower. In between, he wrote Our Haunted Planet. And pretty much all of these books are great. I mean, you read them today and you realize just how, far ahead of his time, John Keel really was. And for those bibliophiles out there who just, you know, love books and love reading, and as a benefit, you know, if you happen to love John Keel, recently in the past three years, um, a guy, Andy Colvin, has been publishing almost all of John Keel's articles that he wrote for various different magazines and journals in the late 60s, 70s, 80s, pretty much his entire his entire life after he started getting involved in researching UFOs and so those have been published in nine volumes and um, great stuff in all of them um, so I'd recommend checking those out some of those titles are flying saucer to the center of your mind um, the perspicacious percipient the passionate percipient um, a few others one is a collection of his articles on, Ma- on Mothman. So all those are available on Amazon if you want to check those out. But the one we're going to be discussing today is the Mothman prophecies. So part of the story of how this started was that while he was, you know, soon after he started doing his investigations, he heard about some stuff going on in West Virginia in a town called Point Pleasant. And that is where these infamous sightings of this so-called Mothman popped up. And numerous people, um, like dozens in Point Pleasant, saw this creature, and they described it as the first thing they noticed were these two glowing red eyes. And the descriptions of the body were like a tall, man-shaped body, um, anywhere between, you know, close to six feet, seven feet, eight feet, so a tall a tall man, um, not giant necessarily, but a, a well-built, big humanoid shape, but with this ten-foot wingspan. So these wings would just, like, uh, come out and these, oh, pretty much all these witnesses say that this thing would fly, but it would take off like a helicopter and just kind of like hover and float. And so, of course, people were freaked out because that's a very strange thing to observe when you're looking out your window or driving down a a lonely road. And that was just the start of it because, as you'll see, if you've read the book or if you decide to read the book, there were a whole host of other strange things that were observed around this time. Everything from just strange lights in the sky to more traditional like UFOs, strange people The so-called men in black. There were a ton of reports of encounters with these men in black, and that's not just um, you know encountering some official person from a government agency in a in a black suit. That's what a lot of people thought it was. But when you actually read the accounts of what was going on, it's probably something like a lot more strange going on than just that. You read the accounts of the men in black. These are people that would show up at someone's door. Um, often, more often than not, after they'd seen something strange—maybe one of these lights in the skies, lights in the sky, or UFO or Mothman—and oftentimes these people hadn't even told anyone yet. And then the next day, sometimes the very day, they get this strange person uh, knocking on their door and then telling them not to tell anyone about it, asking questions about their sighting. And these people um, have very strange features. And I'll just rattle off a few of them. That he, that he points out from, from the accounts of the people that um, interacted with these individuals. First of all, like I said, they're dressed in black suits. Often, um, often the, the clothes look like they're out of date. They're either clothes that went out of style several years ago or clothes that wouldn't come into style for several years. The clothes often don't fit perfectly, so it looks like they kind of you know grabbed a, a suit that was a couple sizes too big or too small many of these things were wearing strange shoes with abnormally large and thick rubber soles um, strange descriptions of their hair sometimes they just had strange haircuts like um almost like you know you just a couple of them had like bowl haircuts where it looks like they just put a bowl on their head and then just cut their hair i mean some of us had those as kids not me because i have curly hair but i knew a few like that and they're no comment <laughs> And their their speech patterns were very odd. They spoke as if they had memorized a script. They often had these strange sing songy voices that were either like too high or too low. They seemed unfamiliar with just very basic things about being human. Um, this one Men in Black encounter that he relates in the book the the guy didn't know what Jello was and tried to drink it. Sometimes they have weird pills that they have to take um in one case, there was this guy that came and his, as the as the as the discussion the conversation that the witness was having with him kind of went on they um, the guy's face started getting redder and redder and and then he decided or i guess is that the one where he said originally in fifteen minutes, I'm going to need a glass of water." And- yeah, in 10 minutes. <laughs> in 10 minutes. So 10 minutes later, he had a glass of water and, and took this yellow pill and kind of, you know, got better after that. And these people often show up in like pristine, out of date, or not out of date, but pristine cars from like 20 years ago. So old models that look brand new and sometimes even uh, smell brand new and it looks like they've never been driven before. These people have been, will show up in, um, out-of-the-way farms or, you know, houses out in the county that can't be easily accessed and it might be a rainy night and muddy and yet these people show up on uh, the front doorstep of these houses and there's no mud on their shoes. And sometimes they'll, you know, they'll leave and the, the, the person will watch them leave and then, you know, turn away and they just disappear. Or they get in these fancy cars that are... Um, you know, 20 years old, and drive away and just kind of disappear. I yeah.
0: wish they could get a car from the future so we <laughs> could have a peek. Yeah. yeah. What are the new models going to look like?
1: Well, like another interesting detail about these so-called men in black is their kind of hypnotic gaze and effect that they had on the people that they were speaking to. Uh, there's one story that Keel relates about, uh, I think it was that, that same guy who required the glass of water in 10 minutes who uh, knocked on the door of a woman's house and uh, asked to come in to ask some questions about some money that that the family she was a part of may have come into. Uh, So uh, she wasn't intending to let him in, and yet after a few moments of of speaking to him, invited him in for dinner. But um, all of these stories, uh, I mean and there were multiple different types of stories that Keel relates uh, in Point Pleasant. Uh, you had what seemed like poltergeist activity. Uh, there were people in the vicinity of the Ohio Valley who also thought they saw large birds that resembled paradactyls. Um, you had UFOs of all types of description. Uh, you had these men in black. So, it seems as though there was some larger uh larger kind of processor or thing uh that that this town was undergoing uh almost as if there were some opening or or uh, or kind of entryway um from another plane of existence another dimension um and and that kind of brings me to something I wanted to to just mention quickly here, and that is as of interesting and fascinating in a sci-fi kind of a way as all these stories are uh, there have been so many of them uh, told by so many credible people and uh, Keel, of course um, when you read his observations uh, he doesn't take anything at all at face value he questions everything a bit like a scientist might uh, and he's very skeptical even of what of what he sees and observes
2: or just uh, not necessarily a scientist but just a real journalist yeah, or, which I guess could be called a a scientist of sorts.
1: Yeah, well, someone who's uh, someone who's questioning things as much as it's possible uh, to question these things, and of course he realizes and says as much. You know, I'm still not, I, I still don't feel like I've gotten to the bottom of all of these things. But uh, we feel here on the show that there is a a utility of uh, for talking about these things. Um, on the top page, we. We see a lot of stories about um, UFOs and, and various stories of high strangeness and the like. And um, you never know; uh, it's entirely possible that uh, any one of us might be confronted with something that we don't have any any explanations for. Um, and so, having having this background in this type of knowledge, especially for those of you who might uh, not have heard any of our Prior shows on this type of uh, subject, um, it might, in some way, provide you with a certain amount of protection. Um, at the very least, you might be a little less afraid if you see something that is fear-inducing, because you know you read some of these stories, and and people are absolutely terrified, uh, and. Rightfully so. I, they had nothing in their experience or nothing that they've ever read before or heard about that prepared them uh, to to see the things that they were seeing. So, um, yeah, and we just uh, highly recommend reading the book and, uh, and continuing to
2: have an open mind about these
1: types of subject
2: matter. And I neglected to do this at the top of the show, but the voices that you've been hearing, uh, you've been hearing some familiar voices uh, in the studio today joining us again after a hiatus we have William Barbé hello everyone and I believe for the first time on the show we have Javis Jackson howdy everyone and Elon Martin of course Hi, folks and me Harrison Cayley one more thing on John Keel um, because I mentioned that he has something of a reputation as being a you know not very reliable um, I don't think that's true I mean I've, I think of course, it's possible in his articles sometimes he got some facts wrong or, you know, mixed up a town or two. But um, his reporting is good, and you you read his stuff, and, uh, like, he's actually, he's not making this stuff up. And if you go to the, the blog, um, a friend of his um, created, uh, Doug Skinner created this blog, www.johnkeel.com. It's been up for, like, six years, and after John Keel died in 2009... Um, Doug got a hold of, um, his, uh, John Keel's paper collection and correspondence. And so for years now, he's been just up, uploading and putting posts up with, um, like Keel's original notes, investigations, letters. And so you can see some of the original stuff going on, including letters from Mary Heyer, who's one of the main, um, personalities in Mothman Prophecies. She was the journalist, um... For, I believe it was the the Point Pleasant Register, was the newspaper. And she was kind of just this no-nonsense um, journalist who you know knew everyone in the town, knew the history, and she got caught up in all this stuff as well. She had several encounters with men in black, and you've got her her letters to him and back and forth, and just to kind of see that these were real people, these things were really going on, and because I know that... Um, you know, for people that haven't either experienced these things themselves or haven't actually looked into them. When you read a book like Mothman Prophecies, you might think, oh, this is just fiction, but it's not. These are real people, and they're describing the experiences that they've had. Now, as to the, the nature of those experiences, that's another question. And that is probably the big thing that John Keel gets into, because he has some... um not necessarily, well, idiosyncratic, but unique perspectives, at least at the time, for what was really going on in his analysis of of all these different types of phenomena. And I think that's one of the things that, that made him um, kind of a fringe guy, even in the field of something as fringe as ufology, is that, first of all, he focused on things that a lot of the you know, mainstream, if you can call them that, <laughs> ufologists wouldn't even get into. If, if you're familiar with the history of, of UFOs and uh, people looking into them, um, you think back to the 60s and what was going on in the 60s. Well, the 50s and the 60s. There were kind of two camps, well, at least, but two big camps. And first there were the kind of hardcore um, nuts and bolts, people looking at UFOs, and they were pretty much just interested in sightings. <clears throat> so sightings of the UFOs, in the sky, you know, what they looked like, the kind of movements they made. Um, a guy like, um, you know, a great scientist like Jim McDonald who who did some really good statistical and just scientific analyses of some of these cases to determine just the, the very first thing, that these are strange, unexplained occurrences, These that many of these sightings could not be explained by <clears throat> by your standard, you know, swamp gas or weather balloons. These were, this was something really strange going on. And a lot of the investigative bodies at the time, like NICAP and APRO, would focus on this. APRO, uh, which was run by Jim and Cor L- Lorenzen, got more into sightings of occupants. So this would be um, a, a sighting of a UFO that actually landed and had occupants. So the... The maneuverers or the pilots of these craft coming out and into of into these craft, and even that was considered kind of fringe for uh, the fifties and the sixties. And on the other hand, you had what were considered just the total whack jobs, which were were the contactees. These were the people that were talking to Venusians and Martians, and getting di- getting taken on voyages to other planets and other worlds, and receiving these messages from these strange blonde beings that were, um, you know, really nice and here to save us. Those were the two camps. And so there was the crazy camp and the normal camp, and, or, you know, so-called normal, the nuts and bolts guys, and they kind of hated each other. And the nuts and bolts researchers, which was pretty much the mainstream, would ignore any kind of um, anything weirder than seeing a weird object in the sky. So they would ignore the contactee cases. You know, they thought they were all liars and crazy. And they would ignore the paranormal aspects, um, you know, strange creature sightings, because ufologists don't like Bigfoot researchers, and Bigfoot researchers don't like ufologists, because both see the other as crazy. And <laughs> so, the, so Keel was kind of an outlier because he looked at all of this stuff and he wrote about all these phenomena seriously. And the reason he he was serious about it was because this, he, like when he looked into it he came to the natural conclusion just by looking at the data that these things were connected there was something similar going on there was some unifying factor tying all these phenomena together and the different camps in ufology were ignoring most of the data and so not only did did you have um, the mainstream which ignored everything but then when you actually got into the field of the research the researchers were ignoring probably the most important pieces of data and those pieces of data are what led uh, keel to his main conclusions and that put him at odds with uh, the ufological community because he was a um, he strongly rejected the main hypothesis of the time which is nowadays called the extraterrestrial hypothesis being that these were beings traveling light years throughout the galaxy to get to our planet essentially just if you flip it around imagine that we get the, you know, humans gain the ability to travel to different worlds in our spaceships, and then we do so, we would be the, you know, the the aliens in our UFOs. And if you just flip that picture again, that's the way that most researchers at the time saw the phenomena, and most today even see it. So th- These are just beings from other worlds traveling here. And Kiel thought that was nonsense. And not only that it was nonsense, but that it was also... Part of a deliberate, call it disinformation campaign by the intelligences behind these phenomena. And one of just one of the reasons that he came to these conclusions was a look through history. And this would be like the history of folklore and mythology and fairy, so fairy culture or. Um, um, vampires. Demonology, vampires, monsters, you know all this stuff. and when you when you look at them and you take you kind of take away the, the um, contingent cultural um, mask and you just look at the kind of what do you call it the essential features of these things, you'll see that despite having different um, different clothes on throughout different cultures and different time periods, it seems to be that there's a similar phenomenon or the same phenomenon. Um, behind all of these different representations.
0: Yeah, he seems to have been influenced from Charles Fork. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he mentions reading his books, and of course you probably know that Charles Fork collected, apparently as a hobby, just news articles of high strangeness for over the past hundred years. And uh, I find that very interesting how he incorporates some of those same ideas into you know, what he was reporting.
1: Yeah, he seems to have been the the Charles Ford of his time. Yeah, because uh, he, you know, when you when you read Mothman prophecies, you you also see that he gets into uh, and in some detail uh, animal mutilation and um, as well as uh, abductions of humans, uh, as well as uh, like you were saying, Harrison uh, contactee experiences and, and messages of all kinds. Um, but getting back to your point. Um, so, essentially, what what Kiel, I think, was getting at was that uh, there is this kind of unseen uh, plane or, or dimension um, that kind of exists outside of uh, 3D space and time in the ways that we think about it, and that these beings, whatever they are, um, kind of exists almost simultaneously with us, but uh, aren't always... Uh, brought to our awareness, um, which kind of makes a lot of sense in a certain way. Um, we we have been reading a lot on uh, on high strangeness and and the the idea that uh, you know aliens in particular may exist on this kind of hyperdimensional uh, plane. That, i.e., you know, they exist outside of time and space, fits in very well with Kiel's hypothesis. So uh, to, to come back now to, to Kiel's work and to, to think about all the stuff that, that we have been uh, researching on our forum um, is very interesting to me. Uh, there, there is so much crossover. Um, and of course, anytime you see that sort of thing, uh, certain ideas get uh, reinforced or, or corroborated in a certain way, hopefully in a good way. Um, but I think that's the case here. Uh, and just speaking of um, our SOT research forum, you know, I was reading uh, the book the other day and I was reminded of a story uh, that one of our forumites wrote in about a few months ago where he was uh, driving down a, a secluded road and somewhere in the Middle East, I think it was Bahrain, and uh, came across uh, some being who was dressed up in some kind of spacesuit uh, getup and uh, who was accompanied by another individual. And several dozen meters above their heads was this cylindrical uh, UFO, basically. And um, the forumite who wrote in about this experience was very calm about it. Uh, he, he he had enough time and presence of mind to observe these things for himself. Um, There's no reason to to question, Uh, well, there's always reason to question if something is what we think it is, but certainly, you know, he experienced something. And um, just to get back to an earlier point, I think it's a testament to the fact that that this forumite who wrote about his experience had read so much uh, about the subject matter prior to his actually encountering it that it ameliorated the uh, the shock, and the and perhaps even the fear that may have been experienced uh, by coming across these weird things.
2: Well, and if I remember correctly, that the account that he gave, he described these these two men as being somewhat like Asian in appearance, mm-hmm. like these two Asian guys in spacesuits, mm-hmm. and that is interesting in and of itself because most of the accounts of Men in Black. Or even uh, UFO occupants from the late '40s and the '50s and the early '60s all describe these guys as looking Asian. They have this. They they they're usually described as being like it, the the witnesses kind of say, well, it was like they were heavily tanned, or they might have been native, or but they but they looked Asian. Um, they they weren't black like they, but they had darker skin, and and the the, the descriptions are always of these guys with this kind of. Uh, you know, darker complexion that look slightly Asian. And it's just, uh, it's kind of strange. <laughs> and they, and they play a
1: kind of a, it, as far as the men in black go, they play a, a very interesting role in the book. Uh, they seem to, you know, f- the first spate of stories we hear about them, they're coming up to various people in Point Pleasant and saying, you know, uh, making the suggestion or asking the question, uh, are you going to report about the UFOs? You shouldn't do that. Or do you know John Keel? <laughs> so uh, there, John Keel himself is or had become at some point uh, in, his, in his investigation part of the story um, because people were being asked by these you know, strange men in black whether or not they knew Keel Uh, what he was doing. And, um, you know, we were talking about the book the other day and the suggestion to me was that there was a strong interest in Keel, exactly because he was such a competent journalist and, and looking at the entire phenomena, uh, the, the, the range of things that were going on at the time uh, in Point Pleasant and, um, and really preparing to uh, come out with this kind of um, as close to a full range of, of accounts of these weird things as anyone has done prior to prior to Keel. So, you know, there is in my mind the suggestion that what Keel was doing was to them uh, something undesired and perhaps even dangerous to their secrecy. Um, but then an argument can be made you know if they were trying to keep secret, why would they make themselves so uh, ubiquitous and 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 seen and and um, and kind of well known to the uh, to the public in that town
2: just to to add a few de- details to what you just mentioned, um, it wasn't just that um, Kiel became part of the story it, it really if you read the book, if you haven't read the book. It is one of the strangest, like, craziest books that you'll ever read. If you read Hunt for the Skinwalker, it's kind of like that, where there's just this concentration of pretty much every weird thing you can imagine going on all at the same time, well, over a period of 13 months. But to when you look at John Keel's place in all of this, and the, and the weird things surrounding him, there were there was something or someone impersonating him who would go around and, and talk to people saying that he was John Keel, and these people had met John Keel, they knew who he, who he was. It was someone that looked exactly like him. And phone uh, people would get phone calls and phone messages from John Keel, and they'd recognize his voice, and they'd talk to him. And then, you know, a week or two later, Keel would talk to them, and they'd be like, oh, well, you know, you didn't... Uh, what about that thing you asked me when we talked last week? And he said, well, we didn't talk last week. What are you talking about? And there were... <laughs> Sometimes they, there was this one woman apparently going around and calling people, pretending to be his secretary and getting information. And he never had a secretary. He was shocked when he found this out. His phone was being, um, well, he found out that his phone was actually kind of, um, I guess you, in the technology of the sixties, it might be the equivalent of like having his phone cloned. (laughs) He had, um, like a second line tapped into his line so that he was, um, he was receiving calls and getting the 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 bill for outgoing calls from uh, a, a number that was only one digit different from his own, and there was again a John Keel impersonator on the other end of this line that was talking to people, taking calls, and and sending out calls, and he, it got to the point. Well, once he figured this out, he you know he made a trip to the to the phone um, phone place, phone juncture and found out that this was going on, and so he eventually, he called, well, actually, he found out about this totally by random, because a friend of his had accidentally called the wrong number. So in the last digit, he di- she dialed a zero instead of an eight. And and so she was about to hang up, because she knew absolutely that she dialed the wrong number, but she let it ring, and he answered the phone, and it was him, and, he, and, and she said, well, this is so weird, because I didn't dial your number, this was the wrong number. So he, di- you know, he eventually dialed this number and asked the person that answered um, if they had any messages for him because he was John Keel and they got kind of nervous and hung up so uh, well and that's just part of the weirdness surrounding the phone calls and phone messages in the book Um, just it's pretty mind-boggling
1: the one of the weirdest ones that stands out to me is when he was going to a, um, a farmers house one night to interview him about some experiences he had and uh he knocks on the door and the farmer comes out basically with this shotgun and and tells keel to get off his property right away and uh and you know keel not you know being belligerent and, and playing it smart says okay i'll leave so he explains this to mary hire um the, the town's journalist and then they come back to the farm and, uh, and she speaks to the farmer for a few minutes. And then the farmer comes over to Kiel, and he says... Well, they laugh, well, they, first of all. <laughs> they laugh, first of all, because the farmer relates a story to her, and th- which he relates to Kiel. And the story is basically this, that uh, 10 minutes before Kiel arrived the, the night earlier to interview him, the farmer gets a phone call from a neighbor who says if John Keel comes over to your house, you just send him away? He's crazy. You don't want anything to do with him. So uh, it was verified after that um, that the farmer who, who the neighbor who called this farmer uh, had never made that call. That he was actually out in the field at the time that this farmer would have received the call, and yet his voice was exactly the same. To the farmer, so uh, there there was some a kind of dangerous element involved in manipulating the uh, this farmer's perceptions of Keel to the extent that he threatened Keel with a shotgun, and uh, you know it could have gone very bad. Um, so that was another one of those experiences that that suggested to me that uh, they had an interest in kind of. Uh, putting the kibosh on the investigations that, that Keel was doing at the time.
0: Yeah, that was one of the questions that the men in black kept asking some of these people. What what would John Keel feel if he were to stop writing about, you know, these supernatural experiences? And I thought that was kind of interesting. It's like they were trying to get a feel for how he might react if, you know, they were successful to get him to stop. And I guess they didn't get the answers they wanted, so they tried these experiments of Threatening his life just to shoo him away, you know, get him to to quit. Well, there, there. I mean,
2: in the chat room, someone had mentioned the movie, and uh, we just watched the movie too, to kind of uh, just for fun. And they actually use that event and kind of fictionalize it a bit and change the elements um, as the opening part. Well, one of the, one of the first scenes in the movie after the little introduction, but the the shotgun episode. And they kind of change it around a bit, because in the movie, the guy, you know, Richard Gere, who plays John John Klein, um, a thinly veiled John Keel, um, arrives in Point Pleasant. And this guy lifts a shotgun at him when he first, um, you know, appears at his doorway because his car is broken down. And in the film, it's because this guy says that John Keel had been showing up every night, you know, for the past two nights at two in the morning. And he tells him to go away, and this is the third night this, that it's happened. So they kind of combined a few elements from the book to make that scene. And just incidentally, um, John Keel was alive when they made the movie in 2002, and he was very happy that Richard Gere was playing him because, as he as he put it, Richard Richard Gere was a John Keel lookalike. <laughs> <laughs> And for anyone who's seen John Keel, I mean, if you look at the pictures, they look nothing alike, so uh, that just shows John Keel's sense of humor. But just speaking about the movie a bit, um, I'd seen the movie probably pretty soon after it came out, um, you know, over 15, or almost 15 years ago. And it was kind of scary at the time, and uh, I didn't really find it that scary this time, but um, at first I thought that, you know, they they didn't really... Well, of course, they didn't really put all the cool stuff from the book in it, but watching it the second time, I was surprised kind of at how much stuff they actually did put into it, or at least hint at. Because, I mean, they don't have UFOs and lights in the sky and all that, but it's at least mentioned, um, you know, through dialogue that this stuff is going on. Um, So, I mean, I I didn't think it was a great movie, but I think that they they captured something of the book. You know, small elements. What would you guys think of the movie?
0: I thought it was a I thought it was pretty interesting. I, I noticed it didn't really follow the book very well, but it did have a lot of the elements in there. Um, it was a fascinating Hollywood take on on the whole phenomenon, and and they did try and bring a lot of scary elements to make it almost like a horror film. Mm-hmm. Um, quick shots and mirrors and uh, spooky faces and the marks on the trees, the burn marks, and on the fender of the car of this miniature-looking Mothman. <laughs> um, so it, it was interesting. I mean, it was fun to watch, but uh, the, the book is so way much better. <laughs> yeah. My biggest
2: disappointment was that they set the movie in the 90s or the 2000s, you know, when the movie was made. I thought it would have been much better as a period piece from, <laughs> from the yeah, 60s. But, yeah. no, that's just me.
1: Well, um, maybe what the film was going for was the the kind of visceral experience of... of uh, interacting with these energies and entities and, and the mystery that's involved in uh, trying to piece together what, what's really occurring. Um, there's one scene uh, in the book where Mothman um, had been sighted uh, by four teenagers who were out for a drive one evening at, a, at an old uh, TNT site uh, in a kind of secluded area. And um, they had the wits scared out of them. So at a later time, uh, Keel drives up there. He drives up there several times, I think, with other uh, residents of Point Pleasant. But um, at one time he goes alone, and uh, and he notices that as he walks through a certain part of this area, uh, he feels extreme dread and fear. And uh, he notices that, that this that this, uh, this fear is only kind of localized. Like if he walks beyond a certain point, the feeling leaves him immediately. But if he walks right back into it, uh, it returns. Um, so it's kind of funny because he, he, he dreads having to walk through it again to get to his car, to get back to his hotel where he's staying. Uh, and is kind of, mulling over the idea of, of staying on that other side of this kind of fear space for the night until morning. Um, but he, uh, he kind of describes his thought process a little bit and the idea that, uh, like he knew rationally that there was this objective space that if he walked through, he'd feel these feelings, um, and would mentally prepare himself to go through it, but, but still dreaded it. And, uh, I think it just spoke to his kind of um, the distance that, that was required uh, of him and that he required of himself in order to investigate these things, uh, always with a kind of a, a little bit of a sense of humor, um, but also kind of un, unattached to uh, the, um, I guess you'd say he was, he was not paralyzed he didn't allow himself to ever get paralyzed by what it was he was investigating
2: well i think that the the sense of well his sense of humor always shows through and i think one of the most important points that it shines through in the book is near the end where it gets into the the topic that is the title of the book the prophecies the mothman prophecies because one of the phenomena that he encountered as this went on was that the the individuals that he was talking to he called them contactees now today we'd call them abductees but these were men and women who uh, had encounters with these you know ufo occupants and then started receiving messages from them either in person or telepathically and this is something that's uh, portrayed in the in the movie as well and so at one point there's a there's a, a prophecy that uh, that one of them gets that this kind of disaster is going to happen and that when president johnson lights up the the christmas tree on the you know the white house lawn that the whole nation is going to have this like 3-day blackout and there's going to be you know chaos in the streets or something's going to happen something bad is going to happen and so at this point keel says that he'd been he'd like totally bought into the whole thing because there had been predictions that had come true in the time before that and so he was sure that this blackout was going to happen. So he had a friend over at his apartment, one or two friends, and you know, so he's got they've got the TV on. He brings out the the bottled water and the candles, and he's just waiting for the moment when the power is going to go out. So they're watching, and Johnson lights up the the Christmas lights, and nothing happens, and he just kind of feels like an idiot. And it's only when the Silver Bridge collapses in Point Pleasant that you know he realizes that there was something to the prophecy, but it just wasn't. It wasn't exactly um, as it was presented, which is a uh, pretty common when you look at things like predictions and prophecies. But I think that relates to what I think is the best part of the movie: is the actual kind of moral involved. Because to spoil the movie for those that haven't seen it, um, there there is actually kind of a plot to it that isn't present in the book, and that relates to like in in the in the uh, in the movie, uh, John Klein is. Um, married to to uh, to a woman at the very beginning. they get in a car accident where she has this vision of the mothman and she dies. and then he spends the next couple of years um, kind of he can't really he can't get over her and he's still thinking about her and the the phenomena in Point Pleasant seem to be um, drawing her or him towards her. She shows up like a double of her shows up. And he just misses her, and and uh, and so he you know tries to chase after her and doesn't find her. He gets a message that she's going to call him at like twelve noon at this time when he's back in D.C. And so he goes back to D.C. and and is waiting for this call at twelve o'clock. <clears throat> and right before twelve, he gets a call from this friend, this uh, woman police officer that he's met in Point Pleasant, and she tells him, well, you know, it's Christmas. Uh, well, it's almost Christmas, and they're going to, well, it is, no, it is Christmas, they're going to have Christmas dinner, so she tells him, well, I got you a plane, I got you a flight, so get over here, um, because you're going to miss it. And so she knows what's going on, and she sees the kind of emotional manipulation that he's being put through. And so the the kind of, cli- one of the climax of the, of the film is that he's there, he hangs up the phone with her, and then it becomes, it's 12 o'clock, and the phone rings. So this is presumably his dead wife on the phone and he has this internal conflict you know is he going to answer it or not and he chooses not to answer it because in the film the the John Klein character has gotten totally caught up in the the narrative that has been presented to him by these intelligences these forces these beings and he kind of he loses his his grasp on reality and so in the film the What I see as the the kind of moral of the film is to to keep that detachment and to to keep yourself grounded in the real world, even with all this stuff going on, and to not get caught up in the 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 false like into the disinformation that's being presented to you. And so this is what uh, you know something that Kiel talks about in the book too about this uh, how this seems to be a common pattern and probably even the purpose or one of the main purposes of these uh, ultra-terrestrials, as he called them later, is that they f- they they are disinformation sources. They feed um, belief systems and worldviews to people. And if you look at it in microcosm, in the in this so-called like contactee or abductee community, they're being fed this view of reality and of things that are going on that is pretty much just totally false. And it's and it's designed in order to steer them in a the wrong direction and he gives the case studies and the examples of these people whose lives are just kind of turned upside down and they're, they it's like they have this kind of religious conversion and where, or this total change in personality and that's a, a very interesting phenomenon in the book in itself because that then relates to the bigger picture when you talk about political ideologies and religions and the the trajectories that humanity has been on for Hundreds and even thousands of years, and how, and the the possibility that these are in fact um, almost you could call them like psychological operations on a cosmic scale. So there's this kind of big picture that's playing itself out, but that also um, operates on the micro level. So like on the on the level of an individual, but it, it so it spans all these different levels. And just maybe before we we move on in the in talking about um, some different aspects of the book, I just wanted to bring up something that I mentioned earlier about just how ahead of his time John Keel was, because the things that he was talking about in the 60s, and when this book was published in the the mid-70s, he kind of anticipated future developments in ufology. So he was talking about... What we now think of as abductions, before anyone else was talking about them, and he was taking them seriously, was not until 1979, 1980, 1981, when people like um, Ray Fowler and David Jacobs, and well, David Jacobs a bit later, but uh, Bud Hopkins, wrote their books on like missing time, and when and when Whitley Strieber came out with his book with the gray alien on the cover. Before that, Keel was talking about these abduction experiences. Um, He didn't talk about them in in exactly the same terms, but he was talking about, like, one of the questions that he'd ask people who had these encounters were about strange dreams they might have had. Well, did you have a dream that you were kind of put into a strange kind of hospital setting and and strange tests were done on you? Because This was something that he encountered repeatedly in the the contactees that he um, interviewed. Also, getting into the idea of hybrids, and these false pregnancies, which again Hopkins was talking about, and then which David Jacobs talked about. So he had this experience with several female abductees who all became pregnant at the same time, and they were told that these were alien babies. And so it was around this time that that Keel realized that it seemed to him that the um, the kind of explanation or the theory behind what he thought was all what was going on was in fact being shaped by the phenomenon itself so he'd get an idea and then after getting that idea the evidence that confirmed that idea would pop up in the people he was interviewing him so he didn't see this as a confirmation of his belief system he saw it as him as him being messed with mm-hmm. like here was these here was these this intelligence or these intelligences who were aware of his thought processes and the the conclusions that he was coming to and even if they were wrong they were then feeding this information through all these other sources in order to confirm that belief system in him to basically steer him on the wrong path. Now, I think this maybe um, actually might have ended up steering him in certain wrong paths just because he might have rejected some actual um, true conclusions, but you know, that's up for, de- for debate. But anyways, after, these, after he kind of started doubting this story about alien hybrid babies, these women, it was revealed... Um, that they were false pregnancies. Now, just looking at that that from the perspective of having read, you know, stuff by David Jacobs and Bud Hopkins, it makes me wonder, I'd throw it out as a possibility that maybe those actually were pregnancies, but that the fetuses were taken out. Um, because that, that is at least, um, something that is presented as, um, Well, it's something that shows up in the abductee literature that this is something that a lot of these abductees report happening at the very least, that they become pregnant and that they end up um, losing the baby and the doctors say, you know, it's strange, it looks like it must have been a false pregnancy because the baby's no longer in there or um, you know something like that. And then, of course, that gets into all the stuff that we talked about with Dave Jacobs about um, hubrids. (laughs)
1: Well, just to get back to a couple of things you just said, Harrison, Uh, this is an interesting uh, thing that he wrote in his book, which speaks to his constant questioning of of whether or not he was being misled in some way. He he asks, uh, were they a part of some subtle programming process? My life has gone through so many abrupt changes, and each major change has been preceded by some form of inexplicable phenomena. In observing other witnesses, this also seems to be true in their lives. Are these things clued to a psychic force which controls us all? So, uh, on some level, he he was really kind of as rigorous as I think he could be with himself in questioning uh, what it was he was being led to believe or think on certain things. But I also wanted to get back to a point you made about um, how how this entire phenomena is kind of shaping uh, the way people think and behave. On a on a macro social level, and uh, something interesting that that Keel kind of discusses briefly is the idea that um, you know Seventh Day Adventists and all of these other religious groups, uh, going back hundreds of years, uh, all believed at some point or another that the world was going to end at a very specific time, and uh, and of course you know it didn't happen, but uh, you know, for the past few years, we have been seeing these stories on SANT by these by these weird groups who who say uh, the world's going to end in in April, and of course it doesn't happen, and uh, it it really does condition a lot of people who read about these stories um, to think. And we don't. And we don't. We're not saying here that we think the world is going to end. "Quote unquote." Uh, we do see certain macrocosmic if you will, changes that suggest profound change in certain directions. Um, but all of these stories have the, the kind of net effect of of uh, creating in the minds of people this doubt that any kind of profound change is, uh, is possible or is going to occur because they've been told so many times that it was going to happen by these various groups, and of course it hasn't. So... Um, just another thing that he was looking at and able to observe back through many decades and even hundreds of years as as what might also be a kind of cosmic COINTELPRO or or psyops that's being uh, perpetrated on, on societies and, and cultures of all different types for a very long time.
3: So a micro a microcosmic or the microcosm of that in the book, would you say would be the bridge incident where it you know there wasn't a disaster mm-hmm. at 12 but nevertheless something did happen
2: yeah yeah it's a misdirection
1: mm-hmm. a a misdirection or a or like was the uh, the whole bridge was the whole um the whole kind of disaster was that from Miss Hires dream
2: well she'd had a no she'd had a dream of um, being in the water, or just of the water, um, with the with the presence, mm-hmm. and in the they kind of put that into the movie too, where she had a dream of going down in the water and drowning with all the presence. But uh, so it's not quite the same. But she did have this dream, and so after it happened, she said, "Oh well, that's you know my dream came true." But it was actually, um, I I think it was one of the the prophecies from Indrid Cold, who was the kind of weird alien or man in black. Um person who was in contact with this guy, Woody Derenberger, and um, and, I th- and I think the con the I mean it was kind of like a vague prophecy like something really bad is going to happen and um, I can't remember how exactly it uh, yeah, on the ho- on the Ohio River that was a prophecy something bad's going to happen on the Ohio River. and so they thought it was going to be like maybe an explosion of this chemical plant <clears throat> and uh, end up being the bridge collapsing. And thirty-eight people died.
1: And speaking of, of microcosm and injured cold, uh, this, this uh, either alien or Men in Black type being um, who was in contact with one of the the um, the residents there. Uh, I think at one point in the book, he this this person that he makes contact with is harassed by another. Men, man in black, mm-hmm. and uh, an injured cold says, "You'll never be bothered by him again." And the following morning, uh, this resident that that injured cold was in contacting receives the set of clothing that uh, that this other man in black supposedly wore, and as a sign to him that that uh, injured cold was looking out for him and kind of seeking his safety, uh, which is kind of a, a sick joke in a way and a, and a manipulation on the part of this, of this being. So, um, you know, one element of this is, is that these beings are kind of these cosmic tricksters who are uh, manipulating the minds and emotions of people uh, who have some kind of insight uh, into our psychology and thinking and what we respond and react to. And uh, and and playing this, and they play these kinds of savior figures uh, to to people uh, in order to get them on their side and to believe the things that they're being told. And the way this plays out, and uh, you know, this, this is a this is a very kind of common thing in in contactee community among some groups. You know, they're contacted by these beautiful six feet tall blonde. Individuals who who speak to them about uh, world peace and how disappointed they are and in Western society and 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 that uh, they you know uh, humanity has to get its act together and um, but all of these messages are kind of tailor made and obvious and and uh, speak to what most kind of normal people with conscience would be thinking anyway. There's no uh, there 's nothing really constructive being um, kind of shared there it 's all this more kind of perception management uh, to create the idea that there that all of the ets are somehow benevolent and caring and looking out for humanity
0: well I think there 's an interesting theme that seems to run and it even bleeds into religion. Um, oh, my gosh, terrible things are going to happen on the earth. You know, humans aren't taking care of the earth properly. But don't worry. We're going to be here to save the earth right at the nick of time. And, I mean, you even see that in the Bible and stuff like that. So it keeps people afraid, but it also keeps them from questioning anything or questioning themselves because, oh, everything's going to be taken care of. Don't worry, but be scared because things are going to happen. (laughs) Be scared, but chill out because we got this. Uh, Okay. (laughs)
1: Well, I, I once went to one of these contactee groups a while back, and and the speaker was saying, you know, we we believe the Anunnaki, Samjazi, uh third reticulant beings are preparing for evac, you know, when when the time is right,
2: <laughs> exfiltration. <laughs> yeah,
1: and uh, you know, it beggared belief. Uh, not that there, are, and we're not saying that there aren't b- benevolent beings out there. That's not what we're saying at all. But but that the the message that, that's being communicated by the very sophisticated guys who want to twist our perceptions uh, is that all of them are looking out for us and uh, they're pretty devious in the ways that they do it.
2: Well, one th- one interesting thing that I'd forgotten about that uh, kind of struck me while reading the book the second time was coming to Kiel's, um, like the, the theory he was working with at the time that pretty much all of the kind of visual representations of what these people were seeing were um, like hallucinatory in nature. He was hypothesizing that at this time that the, the kind of typical contactee experience would be you, you um, first see this flashing or bright light, and that that was basically like a hypnotic opener, and then that everything that the person experienced after that was basically kind of like an induced hallucination that they weren't actually necessarily seeing these UFOs or these mothmen or or aliens or whatever that it was um it was kind of like well it was like an induced hallucination and so he kind of played with this idea in different ways and to try to account for as much of the phenomena as possible and so he got to the idea of these phone calls for example the um and the, and not just phone calls but strange mail too because he he'd have experiences of his mail being messed with, or you know, people sending um, forged letters from him, or or mailing strange messages from addresses that didn't exist, and so he was he'd hypothesized that um, uh, taking into account like this missing time, that was that what was actually happening is that all of these kind of contactees were basically being used as this network of kind of mind controlled agents that they that they would enter this hallucinatory or hypnotic state. And then for that time that they don't remember what was going on, they could then be used to write letters to him in you know block letters and mail them from non-existent addresses, or um, make these strange phone calls, and even uh, he'd even have phone calls with these alleged um, alien beings. Like this one time, he was on the phone with Woody, and Woody said, "Oh, well, Indrid Cold is here in the room with me," and so Keel says, "Oh, we'll put him on the line," and so they actually had conversations with each other, but. You know, Keel wasn't an idiot, and he was—he wasn't. um, um, He also, you know, he didn't take anything at face value. So he, yeah, he realized he was talking to someone with a different voice. But he, even then, he wasn't sure what was going on. Was this a real person in this house? Was was Woody put into some hypnotic state where he then um, spoke in someone else's voice? Because that happens under hypnosis. It happens in multiple personality disorder. And so, was this kind of just another kind of? Ruse that was being played where Woody was kind of was being used to, you know, first of all, hallucinate this other inward cold and then get put in, like, you know, in this altered personality to then speak to John Keel as inward cold. Um, and I think even that just it, it's interesting. I don't know, I don't know if it's if it's true or not, but it's interesting to think about. He then brings up the idea of um, all of these. Lone wolves and assassins, um, up until that point in the '60s and even before, to um, like John Wilkes Booth and the and the um, the conspiracy around the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, how a lot of these assassins seem to have been under uh, in some kind of hypnotic trance, like Sirhan Sirhan. Now Keel doesn't go in the direction of like government mind control. He, at this point at least, seems to have been saying that he thought it was possible that these people were. Um, slip into this hypnotic trance, maybe, you know, from this cosmic force or whatever, who knows what the source of it is, but then they're they're basically being controlled from this other level of reality. And it just, that adds that that brings up just a, another terrifying possibility that <laughs> humans can just be ter- switched on and off and used as these kind of puppets for um, for something really scary. And whether that is just a matter of our strict, you know, personal psychology, where... People can just snap and do weird things that look very sinister when, uh, you know, looked at from the outside, or whether it is actually um, being done by some kind of outside agency. Um, you know, both are scary, but I think the, the second possibility is even more scary.
1: Well, that, that, that's kind of what we're talking about here. If, uh, you know, uh, Keel had another very interesting Uh, thing to say on on the subject of, you know, Western society and modern culture. And and mind you, this was back in the the late 60s. Uh, He said, the psychedelic lights and flickering strobes so popular with the youth culture in the 1960s actually served to induce trances and produce quasi-religious experiences, particularly when coupled with the mind-numbing beat of hard rock music and hallucinogenic drugs. The euphoria of the big rock festivals was a direct product of this phenomena. Young people voluntarily and enthusiastically submitted themselves to a brainwashing process, reprogramming themselves or being reprogrammed by an outside force, which, as the violence and social upsets of the period demonstrate, was not always benevolent. So, um, you know, here he is, I think also at his best, kind of making these very astute, Observations just about, you know, society and culture in general, and what he was seeing in the United States in the mid to late '60s, and kind of connecting it uh, in a in a very interesting way to how uh, it may be uh, a part of some much larger uh, control system. And um, you know, we've we've had some articles up on. Uh, unsought about um, Laurel Canyon and how about the, how the CIA has actually infiltrated the music business and, and steered it in this direction that he would seem to describe. Not that we don't like rock music from the 60s or 70s, folks. It's a, it's a vital part of our DNA. But just to understand that some of it, at least, uh, the lyrics, the music, and, and, and whatever was whatever technology was used to create it, uh, has probably had some dumbing down effects on us. Uh, add to that the types of things that we're hearing and seeing today, um, with videos, with, with popular music, uh, and you know, and Pokemon Go, and among other things. And you know, you just you get the impression that everything in the direction of putting us under some mass hypnosis has been ramped up big time. So, uh, again, so interesting that he was able to see these things at the time that he was and to, and to so eloquently kind of um, present them as, as uh, ways of reading our reality as it really is. Reality uh, as this kind of mass hypnosis-inducing um, uh, construct that, that we haven't been taught or trained to think about in any objective uh, or, or, um, or reasonable
0: way. Before or go ahead. Well, in the, <clears throat> I think it's also interesting that in the '60s, um, during the time that he was writing this stuff, that there was also a lot of anti-war protests, mm-hmm. uh, much more than we've ever seen since then. And I think that's also interesting how some of the culture was being dumbed down with all this stuff, but there was also a, a counterculture that was really against what the government was doing. So maybe this was like a trial run. Well, how can we get more and more people to be dumbed down so they don't do this kind of uh, uh, protesting and stuff? And it seems to be working quite well. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's uh,
1: probably correct. How, how many demonstrations do we see these days
2: given, given... They're
0: very small in comparison, it seems to me.
2: Well, before we move on to the X-Files, any final thoughts on Mothman? observations read the book comments. is that where
0: batman came from
1: <laughs> actually mothman <laughs> came from batman
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> apparently javis do you have any final thoughts on that
3: uh, so <clears throat> i read the book probably three years ago and the biggest thing that stood out to me is that uh, in Kill's observations I kind of got the impression that he was moving away from the nuts and bolts theory, like you mentioned earlier in the show. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, Almost like, uh, well, for me it was like he he might have gone a bit too far, but I don't know because it's impossible to judge. Yeah, it's just the description
3: of the Mothman himself, you know, levitating or taking off in helicopter fashion. I wonder if he received so much backlash because the concept of uh, ultra-terrestrials being a part of another dimension is much more scarier than, you know, aliens having to travel light years, you know, distances that are seemingly safe. Um, that's, I that's probably a fair bet, Javis, because...
1: Uh, you know, if you if you were brought up thinking in materialistic terms, where everything can be explained by by some uh, physical biological um, uh, paradigm, um, where non physical reality is, is poo pooed, uh, it goes against your very uh, you know all of your assumptions and and bedrock beliefs. And to have that kind of challenged uh, by someone like Kiel or anyone else, like a Rupert Sheldrake today, for instance, right. it you know it, it's kind of this—it's an affront on on your understanding of reality. So I imagine that there were that might explain some knee-jerk reactions to the material.
0: Yeah, we're brought up and raised that uh, humans are the top of the food chain, but when you start reading all these paranormal experiences, it it Becomes obvious that no, we're not the top, <laughs> and that's downright scary. You know, the military or
3: the governments they'll say, you know, they kind of promote the the theory that, you know, these are physical beings because, you know, they can protect us with their missiles and uh, you know, military might. But can they protect the public from something that can just zap in and out of existence? Yeah. You know, you know if the public stops. Uh, putting faith in the government, then that's like—they you know, can't have that.
0: You know? Yeah, they fly over nuclear installations and shut them down. So, well, what are you going to do now?
2: <laughs> X Files.
0: X Files.
2: Did anyone get to ch- t- get to watch those latest six episodes that came out earlier this year?
0: Oh yeah,
2: oh yeah. Let us know in the chat room too. And what you thought, because we're going to tell you what we thought. Ilan, give us some background. Well,
1: uh, yeah, we're, we're going to tell you what we thought. Um, about 10 or 15 years ago, I was home sick one day. And uh, I had a fever, and uh, the Sci-Fi Channel was playing one of these X-Files marathons, which was all kinds of... All kind of um, it had all of the episodes, basically, that were focused on alien abduction and, and, uh, and the reality of um, this syndicate or group of human beings who were in cahoots with uh, the malevolent ETs and working to um, basically obscure and hide uh, what was actually happening on Earth. And um, up until that time, I I hadn't seen any of the X Files episodes. So to watch these 12 episodes in a row in this kind of fever pitch, uh, you know, sickness, um, but also having already been fairly uh, familiar with a lot of UFO literature and abduction literature, I was completely taken aback and really impressed with how much, uh, how many ideas uh, the show was able to convey in its stories and uh, and of course this was reinforced by the the first X-Files movie fight the future as it's known Um, and these are like the bedrock DNA story arcs of of the X-Files you know if you ever speak to someone about or bring up the subject of alien abduction uh, the first thing they might say is not, have you read that latest David Jacobs book, but, oh, you mean like in the X-Files? It, it has become that much a part of uh, pop culture's understanding of uh, what may be the reality of alien abduction. And so, you know, we, a few of us SOD editors were watching the um, this new six-part X-Files uh, show that came out about, I think it was in January or February of, of this year. And, um, and it, it turned this entire story on its head. Um, and basically, you know, having Mulder uh, come to the conclusion that it was the government all the time perpetrating these, uh, these abductions. Uh, and not only was the, the government responsible for, for all of these abductions, but it was the government that put it into the minds of people that it was the aliens' fault. Um, so, after kind of resisting the urge of throwing something large and heavy at the television set, you know, I, I, I was wondering, along with a few of our editors here, what the what what did we just see here? Uh, this was a this was a major uh, change in the story that completely subverted whatever was valuable about the X-Files to begin with, at least according to me, Um, you know, which was conveying what what might actually be the reality of alien abductions. And and so, you know, uh, we had a lot of people on the SOT forum discuss it also. And uh, one of the conclusions that was uh, arrived at pretty firmly, and I agree, is that there's, you know, a certain thinking or a strain of, of... thinking involved in the UFO community, particularly with a, a guy named Stephen Greer of the Disclosure Project, who uh, has probably come across some information somewhere to suggest that uh, that a fair amount of abductions are perpetrated by uh, elements of a secret government or, or military factions in, in the U.S. and elsewhere. Uh, and that's probably true, and for reasons that we'll get into here a little bit but that they, they took this, this part of this narrative that was, uh, that was introduced, which may actually be true based on some facts that they probably came across, and decided that that meant that there were no real authentic um, experiences uh, that were experienced by, by people, that they didn't in fact ever have or were or brought aboard certain craft or, or bases and messed with. And, um, of course, you know, we, we've spoken to David Jacobs here, as mentioned earlier. There is just mounds and mounds of related experiences that do corroborate uh, the the validity of this sort of thing happening. Um, missing time, uh, kind of a emotional and psychological distress when, when not being able to recall missing time, um, physical symptoms, uh, weird paranormal Activity accompanied by um, the comings and goings of, of uh, saucer-like craft and other types of craft, uh, just a just a, a mound of of evidence. Um, so, yeah, I, I can just leave it from there for for comments, and there's certainly some more to discuss in that direction too.
2: Well, first, just my thoughts on X Files in general, because I love the X Files. I mean, I was. I was pretty young when I started watching it and I'd watch it with my whole family. Well, I think all of us would watch it and pretty regularly. And so it was funny because it was, it was fun because it was scary and also kind of imbued me with that, um, that whole paranoid, (laughs) um, kind of mood. And it was just a, it was just a great show just because it captured that so well, this, you know, conspiracy angle and secret government and crazy stuff going on. It was just a great show. I thought from that perspective, And, um, if looking back on it, I think probably one of the biggest, um, one of the biggest downsides to the show or one of the things that I'd criticize about it nowadays, um, prefacing that by saying, I do realize it's just a show and I don't really care, you know, what they talk about because it's just a, you know, it's a good entertaining piece of, uh, TV, um, is that even the X-Files kind of got bogged down in the kind of materialism, of the whole phenomenon. Like, um, even if there's a lot of weird stuff that they show and they show all kinds of, um, different phenomena that are based in some kind of, you know, real reports or, or history, like they'd get into things like cattle mutilations and, you know, strange creature sightings. And of course, alien abduction, all these things that are, that are talked about seriously by certain people that actually look into them. And this brought it to a wider, wider audience. So I, you know, I commend the show for that. But the just the idea that you know all the aliens are are these like aliens like E.T.s and that's really all you kind of get from it and there's this kind of um, they have you know some interesting superpowers and but there's you know viruses stored in underneath the the ice in Antarctica and the Arctic and um, you know thousands of years ago these aliens crash landed and left their DNA and viruses and that's how. We get this, like, black oil and whatever. I can't remember if I'm getting all the mythology right. But so that, I'd say that was the downside of the, the original X-Files. But then, like you said, Elan and I agree, the, the new six episodes kind of takes that downside, that, you know, con part of the show, and then just makes it even worse by saying not only is it all just materialistic, but there's nothing even really paranormal about it. It's all the, it's all, the, uh, all the government. And if I remember correctly, in the new series, the the explanation that, or at least the hypothesis that Mulder gives, because there's always the chance that in the next series, next year, you know, it'll all be revealed that everything he thought he knew again was false, and that everything he knew previously was true. But we'll, we'll have to wait to see about that.
1: And and I just want to add, if if that's the case, then more power to them yeah. for for keeping us keeping us guessing. But go ahead.
2: And so, I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, the storyline is that, like, you know, several thousand years ago or some well, no, um, like in Roswell, for example, there was an alien crash, and so this this alien really crashed, but then the evil Air Force guys, you know, shot him and killed him, and it was this big tragedy because they killed this this poor little alien, and that everything since then has been a big government conspiracy so there was a real alien and these aliens were just out to help us cuz they realized you know we were going to destroy our planet and they were just like oh you guys you have to learn peace and love and get rid of your nuclear weapons and then so then the the government like killed this alien and then like weaponized his dna or something i can't remember exactly what happened but so the, they 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 keep the reality of some kind of alien interaction but they kind of limit it to this these few events and then make it one big, just giant government conspiracy. So, um, I just found that kind of disappointing, even just from a, from an entertainment standpoint where, the, you know, just make it all a government conspiracy. Well, that's kind of boring.
1: <laughs> well, um, uh, the thing of it is that, you know, if, if it wasn't bad enough that it took this direction and kind of, you know, misled a lot of folks who, um, who might otherwise not be getting uh, any good information from the X-Files. You know, you, you did have some serious uh, Space Brothers are our friends researchers out there who said, see, the X-Files says so. And they got it right. And and they would go on about how um, the, the show was correct in, in taking on this new direction. Um, and just to get back to Stephen Greer for a moment, uh, so... Uh, the, the Disclosure Project has these very kind of noble aspirations, right? Um, they, they want, you know, they have these disclosure witnesses, various military, uh, people in private industry, coming out uh, in this National Press Club um, conference to state what they've seen and what they know, uh, such that it is, and say that they would be willing to Uh, you know, say it under oath, all in the kind of – all with the purpose of kind of compelling the U.S. government to come out with disclosure, with all the information it has on alien technology and interactions, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason for that is because the government uh, or elements of the government and industry uh, have technology – zero-point technology, as it's called, which was another theme of, of the new X-Files show um, that would permit us to get off of fossil fuels and eliminate um, economic barriers and just create a, a utopian or, or a better society for people who, who can uh, get power from these technologies that the government has. All very noble-sounding. Um, you know, Greer is, is very presentable, uh, but embedded in all of his research is the aliens don't do these types of things. And if they do do these types of things, we should think of them as, as kind of like doctors or, or researchers who tag animals and, and release them into the wild. And we might experience a little trauma because, of course, we don't know what's going on, but they're not, they're not really here to hurt us so uh that that was of course a big strain of influence on on the show and um you know once you get past the idea that uh that disclosure project disinforms people in a very clever and covert way on the on the reality of alien abduction um then you see how it influences. The X Files and and how this disinformation has been further propagated, and I think that that to me was kind of annoying and upsetting and uh,
3: aggravating. It seems like uh, an emotional hook for a variety of people. You know, if you're into you know, new propulsion technology or somehow having limitless energy. That's thrown in there where, you know, they're going to release these technologies and say something along the lines of, hey, guys, we were just testing it out, making sure it was safe. And uh, now here it is. And uh, then on the other side, you have people that are just disenchanted with the state of the world and, you know, they want a change. They need a change. And then, of course, the Disclosure Project is saying, you know, they're here to help. So it just seems like... It makes me suspicious.
0: Yeah, the aliens have all this technology they they want to give us, but the government is preventing us from getting access to it. Right, Uh, And they've been saying this all along. Well, all those microchips and all these developments, they were all actually from the aliens. They just uh, release it slowly as the economics are needed to keep the economy going. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Well, I think actually the best...
2: The best new X Files was actually Stranger Things, the Netflix show which isn't <laughs> X Files, because I think X Files has kind of, um, well, you know, I'll give I'll give any new season a chance just because you know it's a an integral part of my childhood, but um, but I think Chris Carter and and the whole X Files team kind of just kind of uh, like lost it and dropped the ball and kind of can't really do anything new and and interesting with it, but. Um, We watched this show, Stranger Things, too, which is a new one, um, set in the '80s. But it's kind of it's more of like a John Keel X Files, the way I see it, with kid detectives. And anything with kid detectives is is um, fine by you. Yeah, fine by me. um, Because Mulder and Scully kind of give the FBI a good image, and I'm not sure if that's the kind of good influence on uh, impressionable minds.
0: One thing about the old X Files or the original X Files series that I found interesting was the introduction of there's more than one kind of alien. Um, The consortium seemed to be working with one type of alien that was promising them, you know, everlasting life or whatever. And then you had this black oil, black goo type, you know, opposite, uh, real mean and against uh, human nature. And they were trying to find a vaccine to inoculate. The population or certain people to prevent them from being taken over by this black oil, and I thought that was interesting. well, there's more than one alien, of course, we know it probably is, um but they make it seem like one of them is benevolent and and one of them isn't um, well, you know who can say if that's really true or not but the then the new series, of course, doesn't even go anywhere near that no.
1: But one thing that it might have done not badly um, of course it's it's to the exclusion of any kind of malevolent uh, extraterrestrial force um, that exists um, is just this idea that um that there you know it had this kind of really clever montage with George Bush and uh and consumerism, and and, and um, civil unrest, and uh, the kind of Alex Jones type uh, um, journalist who is explaining what he thinks is going on uh, in mm. in the West is saying that you know there there are these psychopaths that are in every sphere of influence, uh, dumbing us down, feeding us badly. Creating disease, creating all of this conflict, and um, you know that that speaks to the idea that has quite often been mentioned on SOT. You know, who needs aliens when you have psychopaths? Um, which is to say that the the kind of psychopathic reality that we describe or try to describe here uh, every week on Behind the Headlines in the Truth Perspective. Um, only seems to be growing uh, and propagating itself, and and uh, insinuating itself into into our lives. So um, you know, I, I think that that had value, uh, but again, it, it was it was at the expense, it seemed, of completely changing and 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 ruining one of the best elements of the show to begin with. Um, so. It wasn't completely useless uh, as a as a way to disseminate good information, but uh.
0: yeah, about the only thing I saw one thing that interested me in the new movie in the new series was the new agents that were being brought into the into the x files and how Scully and Mulder had to try and get them to see things the way that they have seen them in the past and how they kind of play tricks on them to finally get them to, especially the the, the new woman, I forgot what her character name was. Because she Einstein? Yeah, you know, she was so skeptical of everything. Everything's nuts and bolts of materialist and trying to get her to come around and see, you know, things that she doesn't normally want to see. And that was about the only thing that I found kind of interesting was how they, you know, tried to change her mind and try and make her more aware. And, but uh, that's not a big testament to the movie, to the series. (laughs) The best thing about the
2: new six episodes was the Lizard Man episode, in my opinion. (laughs) Tell us why. (laughs) Well, because in the original series, some of the best episodes that, you know, weren't part of the mythology were a few of just the the really off-the-wall, crazy standalone episodes that were just really funny. Mm Mm-hmm. And, um, like, I can't remember the names of them off the top of my head, but, um, there were just some great, great stories, really funny situations like the one where Mulder and this, um, was he like this area 51 guy switch bodies and it's just hilarious stuff. And the same guy that wrote some of those funny episodes wrote this one. And it's just, it's, I just like it cause it's hilarious <laughs> and, and it's got the guy from A flight of the concords, the New Zealand guy. Um so it's just at least there was a little bit of entertainment that was kind of a break from the just like monotony of bad tv Well what's interesting
1: about that I mean it it was a really funny episode you're right but it also kind of plays on um it's clever it, it's very clever it plays on everybody's uh perceptions of lizard man aliens Uh, And that, and reptilians are like the penultimate evil beings that we've, uh, that we read about from time to time who, uh, in in various of the books, oversee the greys in abduction processes. Um, But here was this, this poor guy who was really a, a kind of a, you know, a reptilian who lived on earth, who would, like a werewolf, instead of a, a man changing into a werewolf. It was a reptilian changing into a human, <laughs> and and living this kind of monstrous life as a human being. You know, getting addicted to porn and and, uh, and getting a job. Getting a job at a cell phone store and you know uh, and drinking and and you know wrecking his room and uh, you know. And the comment there, I think, is that we're we're kind of the the werewolves. You know, we're we're kind of you know the, the monsters.
0: And he had to bear his soul at a graveyard near a tombstone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hilarious. I'd, I'd I'd recommend
2: just watching that one episode if you're not interested in watching the rest of them. Just watch that one. Anything else on the X Files? Or anything related? Any random thoughts? No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, I'll just um, throw this out there. Um, Brent couldn't make it on the show today to do a, a police state roundup. So, if if you're really sad and you want to check out the latest police state stuff, Brent did write an article. It's up on SOT um, as a focus. So you go to the main page and it's there, and that should tide you over until the latest, you know, utterly depressing and um, gross episode of the police state roundup. And um, what else? Well, maybe just a little bit of news. Um, Just an update on some stuff that's going on around the world. In Syria right now, there is a major uh, battle going on around the city of Aleppo. Now, Aleppo has been um, kind of the center point for the Syrian war at a couple times in, in the past five years. Once in 2013. And even just recently, um, I believe was it late last year, where the you know the fighting was intensifying, and just like happened in Ukraine, once the fighting intensified to a certain degree, a uh, ceasefire was called. That's when the cessation of hostilities started in various parts of of Syria. Uh, but now, what has happened in the last couple of weeks is that the Syrians have managed to um, encircle the so-called rebels in East Aleppo so there's this um, the section of East Aleppo has been totally surrounded um, by the Syrian army and we talked about it last week but in the news when you read about it you'll hear about what a horrible thing this is that the the poor East Aleppans are surrounded and being besieged by the by the Syrian army and um, how it's just this humanitarian disaster and what is astounding about the past week of news coverage has been just reading the total nonsense, like rot that has been coming out of the Western media. It has, like, I didn't think it could reach, you know, a, a level even lower than it has been for the past five years, but it has gone, like, depths lower, <laughs> like, exponentially lower to the point where, um, the so-called rebels, again, are trying to lift the siege by attacking from the west. So if you look on the map, there's this little circle of East Aleppo that's surrounded by the Syrian army, and then, um, like, the Syrian army only holds, like, West Aleppo, and then the port parts just north and just south of that, and then all to the west of that is so-called rebel-held territory. Now, these so-called rebels have launched an attack for the past week or so on the Syrian army to try to break through that thin, um, that thin area that is held by the Syrian army in order to free their compatriots in East Aleppo. Now, what all the media will tell you is that Al-Qaeda is participating in that attempt to lift the siege, so-called. Now, so if you just think about that for a second, you know, think about... You know, how, how you think that the, the media would then frame it. Well, the way that they're framing it is that, oh, this is great. You know, Al-Qaeda is doing what the, you know, what everyone else is not doing. They're lifting the, this, the, the horrible siege on Aleppo. So, al-Nusra, now uh, Jabhat J- uh, al-Fatah, or no, Jabhat fatah al-Sham, are, um, are the humanitarian hero rebels, attempting to break the siege on East Aleppo. So you've got Western media hacks that are praising Al-Qaeda. These are guys that are, that have, um, and other so-called rebel groups. These are guys who have beheaded children, who have launched chemical attacks, who in this latest um, offensive have killed dozens of people in suicide truck attacks to break this siege. And... They're being praised for it, <laughs> which is just i I've, uh, like I said—I find it unbelievable that it, it has gotten so so um, overt. It's like they're—they can't even—they're not even like trying to deny that Al Qaeda are the ones doing it. They're fully accepting it and just saying, "Oh well, you know, well, you know, we may not like Al Qaeda, but uh, but you know, good job. Uh, someone's got to do it." Which has, of course, been the the um the narrative you know underneath the surface it's been the truth behind the narrative for so long but now they're just openly saying it, which I guess you know should be a good thing because at least they're telling the truth in a certain sense. But uh, that they are you know Al Qaeda supporting networks and that these yeah I mean all these news agencies and and news reporters and I mean they're openly supporting these guys these people have been arrested for less thrown in jail for, you know, providing ideological support to terrorists. Mm-hmm. And yet here they are doing it in the media. I mean, it's just disgusting.
1: Well, that reminds me of the anti-Russia propaganda and rhetoric that's been uh, reached uh, hysterical proportions here in the U.S. over the past week. Uh, Hillary Clinton just went on Fox News and said again that the DNC emails were hacked by Putin and Russia, uh, more or less. And, um, I mean, you know, it's so shameless. It's such a shameless, blatant, uh, disgusting lie. Um, I mean, you could, you know, out of desperation, uh, the DNC, you know, write, at the beginning of the uh, Democratic convention, came out with this narrative to deflect from the fact that uh, that Clinton's crew and all of her cronies uh, in the in the uh, in the Democratic caucus uh, had basically stolen the election, the nomination from Bernie Sanders. But now she has the temerity, the gall, uh, the the. What's the word? What, what are some more dis- disgusting adjectives I could use here? Uh, to, to continue this lie. Um, but really what she's doing is she's, she's sending another message to all of her uh, masters in the military-industrial complex uh, and, and into Wall Street who stand to make more money from war. And that is, I'm your gal. Uh, I will say whatever is necessary uh, to justify in the minds of Americans and to prepare them for some all-out war with Russia. Uh, and, uh, you know, you have, uh, media outlets in, in the U.S. repeating these lies as, as though they're true and then going off in all these, these tangents and directions with the assumption that, that, uh, Russia was somehow involved in that, uh, in that dissemination of emails. And um, it, it's just it's just totally disgusting. Uh, and there were a couple of other stories along these lines that we've carried this week unsought. Um, you know, there there are these uh, these think tanks and organizations like the Atlantic Council and um, and uh, and various others that are suggesting that Poland uh, come out. And basically cyber attack um, moscow 's metro uh, subway system and St Petersburg, and sabotage RT Russia today, the media outlet uh, as a kind of offensive measure um, I mean this is this is u uh, s think tanks who are uh, supported and funded by uh, companies like Raytheon and uh, Northrop Grumman uh, and uh, Boeing and and all of these other industries that build arms uh, to come out and and push these countries in Eastern Europe and Western Europe into conflict with Russia as basically these the new the new kind of proxy uh, forces against Russia um, and all of this is leading to an instigation. Of conflict with Russia, and until Russia can't and won't stand for another provocation and respond in some way, and then the U.S. can just turn it around and say, "Look, Russian aggression," when in fact all they're trying to do uh, is is keep the balance of military strategy uh, in check. So um, we're seeing something we're seeing something rather uh, incredibly horrifying going on here. Um, and uh, I don't think a week goes by that, that we don't hear something even more outrageous than the week before.
0: Well, getting back a little bit on Aleppo, um, I found it interesting how Kerry was meeting Lavrov quite a few times this year, mm-hmm. and even with Putin, with Putin. Um, and I kept wondering, well, they're meeting quite a bit, but they don't seem to be resolving anything. And and I kept having the plan B in the back of my mind that that had talked about. And so now I'm thinking this is a fruition of that is this battle for Aleppo. Um, They want Russia to be in a quagmire, but it's not working. In fact, some of the analysts are surprised. Well, we're surprised Russia is so successful and not stuck in some sort of quagmire. Um, And then it brought to mind how U.S. just went to assert Libya and started bombing you know, mm-hmm. Islamic uh, state over there, as if to draw Russia's attention away from what's going on in Syria, to say, hey, look, you know, now we're over here and now we're over there. And, and uh, there's even some commentators saying, well, you know, U.S. should have, uh, you know, gone with Russia to help, you know, with the Libya situation and getting rid of <laughs> terrorists, since apparently Russia is pretty successful at doing that. So it's just kind of a... Uh, just watching all these chess pieces being moved around, I find it quite quite interesting.
2: Yeah, and I think the the guy behind the Moon of Alabama blog made an interesting observation earlier this year. <coughs> excuse me, Kerry had said something about August first being the deadline yeah, for initiating yeah. the you know political transition process in Syria, and gave some kind of like vague veiled threat that you know if that came and passed that you know new new tactic new tactics would new tactics would be used or something to that effect and if you look at around august 1st and what's happened since then well what has happened since then al-nusra which is al-qaeda in syria has rebranded as the moderate you know jabat fatah al-sham and which is a great name by the sham. way yeah, <laughs> sham al-scam and and the the you know Al Qaeda and the various other rebel groups have used this entire period of the ceasefire and cessation of hostilities to just um, regroup, rearm, and plan this major offensive. So this looks like it has, it is the you know like the, the Plan B or whatever, or Plan C or Plan D, whatever plan they're on <laughs> by now. That um, so I mean you can you can directly blame the U.S. for the Al-Nusra offensive on Aleppo. And the irony is that there's all these, um, you know, Robbie Martin, when we had him on the show, he called them concern trolls, you know, people that basically troll the Internet with their um, faux concern for um, situations that don't really need any concern. So, I Mm -hmm. mean, that would be like the essentially, um, you know, wailing at the the horror of, you know, Syria killing terrorists, which is essentially, you know, what the the U.S. officially would, you know, presumably get behind and, and support. But instead you have these people crying that the you know, that these terrorists are, are being killed. Irony, you know, being that, uh, you know, look at what happened in Afghanistan and Iraq and the media reaction to those. But, um... You have so all these concerned trolls talking about the the siege of East Aleppo, ignoring the fact that first of all there aren't three hundred thousand people in Aleppo. Um, for the past three years, you know the vast majority of people have gotten out of East Aleppo and gotten gotten into government-held territory where they actually feel safe, because the people of Aleppo didn't support the rebels back in twenty eleven, and they didn't support the rebels when the rebels took over, and they have essentially been held hostage for the past. Um, what, three years? However long Aleppo has been held. And so you have everyone in the West just, uh, you know, crying about the poor people in East Aleppo, people who were just waiting for and hoping for the, the Syrian army to liberate them from these jihadis, uh, these head chopping nut jobs in East Aleppo. And so there's all this concern about the siege of East Aleppo, and yet at the same time, all this support for. Al Qaeda in West Aleppo to break through this narrow um, this narrow bit of territory held by the Syrian army and create an even bigger siege on north and northwest Aleppo which holds like some uh, kind of like millions of people. So they're essentially championing the uh, like an even greater siege that would cut off an even greater number of people from Medical supplies, electricity, water, food, and no comment about that in the media. No concern. It's just—it's not
1: even a—it's not even a, a piece of information. It's not even a reality in, in the most superficial sense, um, and that's because the West comes out with these stories like the presidential campaign, and and folks are completely uh, in the dark as to, as to what the dynamic is, even if, you know, once in a while you get a little glimmer of, uh, of, of truth on the ground, uh, as it were. But, um, I don't know. It, it, it just seems as though, uh, the, the West strategy, you know, the days of the West strategy in Aleppo and Syria are, are coming close to an end. At least that's my hope. And I think by now, uh, the Russians and Lavrov, in particular, who you know you were saying was having all of those meetings with Kerry William. Um, they've got their number. You know this is this is uh, this is all bullshit of the highest order. and um, I think now it's just a kind of a you know a, a, an exercise in diplomacy. You want to talk to us? Sure, we'll talk to you. We were always willing to talk, which is true. At the same time, we know that just beneath your words is this implacable uh aim to oust Assad and and uh do your plan B thing in Syria, which we're not going for. Um so things are things have come to a head there. Uh like you said, Harrison, you know, August first has come and gone. And uh and the, the Russians and the Syrians and Iran and Hezbollah and Iraq and, and that whole group uh, will just continue um, knowing exactly what the U.S. is up to, and the fact that they'll never really change their strategy—they're uh, just going to continue to to fight, and um, we'll see if things come to
2: a head. Well, at this point, at least, it's it's touch and go, like um, Al Qaeda basically took, well, they, they claimed that they broke the siege and got through to East Aleppo, and apparently they actually did for a period of time. They managed to take over this military academy, which was kind of a stronghold for the Syrian army. And since then, of course, the, the Syrians have been trying to bring in reinforcements and new troops and try to take it back, and the fighting there is just intense. And so it's, it, you know, it's at least this battle, you know, Aleppo is pretty up in the air at this moment. It's, uh, you know, a lot of people at the beginning were saying that it, it's just going to be, um, you know, pretty easy, you know, and the that the, the Syrian army would pretty much just, you know, it would be a, what's the word, just a, a cakewalk basically, but it's not <laughs> because it looks like these, that the this offensive has been planned for a while and they've got just like thousands of, of fighters pouring in from all these uh, rebel-held uh, territories in Syria. So it's, it's not an easy fight at the moment, and a lot of people are dying. So um, I don't know, it's just... Yes, there, there was a Russian helicopter
1: that was downed a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. uh, probably because of these man pads, uh, which are kind of surface-to-air missiles that are U.S.-manufactured, and somehow they still have a supply line of arms that's coming in from somewhere that's helping these guys
0: well i think well the syrians did hit a supply line going into aleppo Mm -hmm. that's what they've been focusing on yeah Yeah. and i'm sure russia is gonna is watching it very closely and if they need to they'll they'll step in and, and help out if the battle seems to be going the wrong way. Well, what the, the Russians have been focusing
2: their airstrikes to the west on the supply lines, so they've been trying to make, make sure that these guys can't get reinforcements. But they have been avoiding using helicopters in the actual combat zone, probably because of that, that recent downing of the, the helicopter, because it looks like these guys do have man pads. And um, this can, you know, at least um, there's the danger that they they are effective against this type of, the type of helicopters that they have there, and that, um, um, you know, it it is a big risk to to bring such, um, helicopters into the combat zone like that. So, for now, at least, they're focusing on supply lines and, uh, convoys, and meanwhile, um, there's rumors, at least, that I think more Iranians are are showing up. Hezbollah has, has showed up in Aleppo to help out, but, um, you know, like I said, it's just a, it's just a, a bloodbath right now going on, and so we'll just have to watch it and see, and you know, hope it doesn't last too long. Mm-hmm. Um, on that note, well, just a, another short update. It looks like Ukraine is getting set to possibly start a new offensive against uh, Donetsk and Lugansk. Um, the leader of the Lugansk People's Republic. There was uh, an assassination attempt on him just a day or two ago. His car was uh, basically almost blown up by a, a landmine set up on a um, a telephone pole or a power pole um, on the side of the road. And I think I think two of the people he was with might have been killed. He's been injured, but they're saying that he's stable. Um, the uh, Zakharchenko and and um, some of the people in Donetsk government are saying that their intelligence says that Kiev is planning a, a new major offensive. So that's like another, you know, another, um, another conflict that can can be used to just create chaos and divert possibly, you know, or if they think that they'll be able to divert Russia's attention again to East Ukraine. And I mean, what else is going on?
1: Well, it, it's interesting because I, I think it was Zakharchenko who said there will be no Minsk 3. Yeah, that's right. So it's like, you know, they, they didn't even really adhere to, not really, they didn't adhere, adhere at all to Minsk 2 agreements. Um, you know, every, everybody's pointing fingers at Russia and Russia's like, why don't you tell your, your friends in Kiev to just abide by what they agreed to when they met with Poroshenko? Uh, but, of course, they're not doing that. And so, you know, in saying there will be no Minsk 3, uh, he's saying if if this conflict turns bad again, if these guys are going against the Minsk 2 agreements in such an egregious way, we're going to take it all the way to Kiev. We have to, um, in, a, in a sense, for our very survival. And um, so... If Kiev does decide to do something very stupid very soon, uh, they they might be in for another um, whooping.
0: Yeah, I as, think. and as a side note, uh, Ukraine's Darlene that was recently released from Russia, I forget what her name was. <laughs> uh, she's on a hunger strike now. because uh, She's against Kiev's policy on Donbass and wants them to just leave him alone. So that's another little thorn, and maybe – they're thinking, well, we need to do something quick before everyone else changes their mind on what to do. <laughs> well, another th- another funny
2: thing about about Donetsk is that uh, Zakharchenko had said, um, "Well, if you guys attack, don't blame us when you guys have when we force you re- to retreat all the way to Kiev." <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, little of, a little bit of a little bit of bluster there, but I think it's good. Just two pieces of of news, really quick, that I wanted to get out um, from the past couple of weeks. One is that this kind of landmark case in in Canada, the the two um, the couple that was arrested uh, was it a couple of years ago for the their terror attack that got foiled in B.C. Mm-hmm. Um, Graham McQueen talked about it when he was on the show. That went to court, and the judge just threw out this kind of ruling out of nowhere. Um, basically saying that we have enough terrorists as it is, and we don't need the police creating more. So they were these guys were let go, and she was basically, she basically said this was police entrapment from the very beginning. And uh, you read some of the quotes from her, and essentially she's saying you guys should be ashamed of yourself. You guys are horrible. The, the RCMP, you created this. These guys wouldn't have done anything without you. They couldn't have done anything without you, and you were totally to blame for, for everything that happened. And um, that's just... Mind-boggling that that would happen because that's exactly the the situation for pretty much every terror arrest in the United States has been these these FBI entrapment cases, and in Canada RCMP, which is the FBI equivalent, um, did the did the exact same thing. I believe it was 2013, and this judge just ripped them to shreds, and which was um, very pleasing to see. Mm-hmm. Another pleasing piece of news um, is that the um, in the trial for one of these guys relating to Um, you know, Bosnia, Yugoslavia. Um, In his trial, uh, Milosevic was basically exonerated of all the accusations against him for the past 20 years. And no one in the mainstream media is talking about it, but pretty much every claim that we've heard about Milosevic for those 20 years is completely contradicted in this ICTS. I think that's ICTS, yeah, the court that's dealing with um, all the, you know, war crime trials relating to Yugoslavia. They basically said this guy had, you know, Milosevic did not want to, did not even want war. He wanted peace. He wanted unity. He didn't call for any kind of, Ethnic cleansing. He was totally against genocide. Um, he disagreed with any any of his like uh, any of the military guys who were even um, you know part of of any kinds of war crimes. He was basically totally innocent of everything that they said about him. And so, it and like I said, it's not being covered in any of the mainstream media, but people like uh, Counterpunch covered it, and Global Research, and uh, you know the Duran, some of the just alternative kind of sources, and it just goes to show that uh, you can't trust anything you hear about, you know, people like people that they call the new Hitler. Because, of course, Milosevic was like the, you know, the Hitler of the Balkans. And the same things are being said about Assad and Putin and now Erdogan. And um, it's just totally transparent. And it's kind of, it's good to have a little bit of vindication, but it's sad at the same time and depressing that it takes, in this case, it takes 20 years before the truth actually comes out. And even then, no one's talking about it.
1: And and in his case, he was uh, he was imprisoned. Uh, he knew that they didn't want him to talk uh, and have a fair trial. Yeah,
2: they couldn't bring him to trial.
1: And and he also knew that he was going to die in prison, mm-hmm. and he did uh, several years ago. So um, yeah, yeah, this is our world, folks. Mm-hmm. This is our world. Thanks to uh, thanks to the psychos in
2: Washington. For the most part, and on that note, it's been two hours, so I think we're going to end it there and talk again next week. So thank you everyone to tuning in for tuning in and listening us to listening to us talk about some crazy stuff and I hope it inspires some people to check out John Keel if they haven't before. Like I said, he's got like 15 books out there now, um, and it's just all great material. Just pick one at random and enjoy. So thanks, everyone, and take care.
1: Take care, everyone. See ya.
0: Goodbye.